Hey, this is David Hayter. You may know me as the screenwriter of films like X-Men, X-Men 2, and Watchmen, but you probably know me best as the voice of Solid Snake from Metal Gear Solid. And you're listening to Hawaii's number one podcast, the Casanova Podcast. Kept you waiting, huh? This wasn't written with your comfort in mind. Nah. Made my decision, wasn't tough to decide. Nah. Me and my boys, we get it done every time. <laughs> Gotta earn it, you can't just jump in the line. You'll get rushed to the side. I, I top my division, I've been building since I started. In the parking lot, I parked it. I came in while picking targets. My career cannot be tarnished. I'm a champion regardless. Celebrate, but this is a different kind of lucha party. We are not alike. I don't, I don't want your advice, I don't want your opinions It's not gonna be different from the ones I told to listen I've been working on a bigger picture and y'all ain't impressing me Hey, como se dice, shut your mouth, respect the legacy yeah, yeah, Ain't no yeah. comparisons, y'all just embarrassments All of my confidence is rooted in my heritage, yo And with Mendoza and Mr. Wild, we showing what this about Phantom driving your career is disavowed, what's happening, y'all? All right. Aloha, everyone. This is Mikhail Casanova, host of the Casanova podcast, along with my co-host, Lehua, uh, of the podcast Across Worlds. This is a collaboration podcast between our two shows. And we uh, actually, I'll shut up and let you go ahead and introduce yourself. Go ahead. <laughs> it's been a while. You know, I, I got to get back into the, the swing. It's been a couple months. <laughs> So as Mikael was saying, I'm Lee Kula Superfi, and I host a podcast across worlds where we like to read a lot of manga, watch a lot of anime, and talk about for hours. And <laughs> Mikael and I just saw Dota on Netflix, and it was amazing. It was truly amazing. And speaking of that, we have the producer, the writer, creator, none other than Ashley Edward. How are you? Well, Ashley Miller, how are you doing? I don't know why I say Edward. <laughs> I Actually, yes, way I know. Books. Let me just tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I know why I said that because I'm I'm re- reviewing The Last of Us Part One. Sony just sent that to me, and it's like, yay! They're like, you're gonna get a lot of hate from people for this game. I'm like, I know. I don't know why it's really good, but anyway. <laughs> so, but, but how are you doing today? <laughs> I, I'm doing great. Um, you know, it's just as a. It's a it's a beautiful day here. I'm sure it's not nearly as beautiful as it is where you are. I think it's beautiful everywhere. Just I'm just glad that we're going through days normally, especially after the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, where we're having a Skype conversation because it's literally the only way to have the conversation, as opposed to we have to have the conversation this way. Yeah. Very, very uh, true. <laughs> which was how we recorded almost half of Dota. Really? Yeah. What? Wow. Uh-huh. Yep. Like you guys recorded the voice acting, or you did all the planning through Skype. We did all the the about half of the voice acting. I think we made it through. Uh, well, that's not necessarily true. Um, we made it through the first or second episode of book three before the pandemic hit. And then all the new records we had to do like over the internet and we had to direct and kind of deal with the actors over Skype. We figured out pretty quickly, we could only do one at a time because of bandwidth. Um, 
and then all the ADR, we do lots of ADR on those um, because, you know, I, I just, I, I, I don't necessarily believe that, you know, even if a, a first take is, is great, like it needs to be great in the context of what's happening also in the animation. Um, and, you know, it, it, that can be anything from like, what's the volume and the, and the projection to, I just had a different idea for how to approach the scene, or sometimes I would change dialogue. So I would say overall, between the ADR and the original records, we did maybe not half, like maybe 40% uh, via Skype. And uh, uh, there's a, there are online, you know, apps that will let you basically plug people in directly the wire right into the into the soundboard and they can just record that way but it was it was challenging and i never want to do it that way again wow we can't even tell yeah it, it didn't seem like that at all yeah well there's a whole thing um that everybody had to had to go through the um because look when you're when you're doing live action and you want to record adr it's really simple like literally i have friends who do um they do what's called looping and looping is when you have people who just provide background voices. And this is one of my friends who's uh, who's in the loop group for, for Dota. And for live action, you could just record into your phone and just send it, and it's no big deal. Um, wow. But with animation, everything has to sound exactly the same. Uh, it has to have the same room tone. It has to have like the same, like everything has to feel right, um, or it, it, you would watch it and you would feel like this is there's something deeply, deeply wrong that you wouldn't notice on a live action show. Um, so, you know, the engineers would have to do tests. They would send out specs for everybody. Like there was there were all kinds of things and, and people didn't have recording booths. So they were recording from their closets, you know, which were next to the freeway <laughs> you know, or, hey, you know, the, uh, the the gardeners here, you know, maybe I'll stop him. Uh, my son did, um, you know, nepotism uh did a voice in the in the pilot and he did a voice in the third episode of, of book one and we needed to do AD, adr for him and we had to set it up in my house we we had him uh sitting inside the master bedroom closet uh with the microphone and the headphones he couldn't see anything because the uh the computer had to be pulled out of the out of the closet and my assistant had to sit at the computer because of the fan noise. What? And I had to be across the house in my office, then plugged in. So we're literally all just sort of sitting across the house from each other to make this work. So we can't hear each other except over the headphones and trying to relay direction, you know, to my son who is, you know, the, there's a metaphor, for this about parenting, but uh, but he is across the house, and I'm trying to tell him what to do and and kind of get the things that I I need out of him. And it was just it was bananas. Um, you know, we actually figured out like crazy workarounds for things like um, Alex Wilton Regan, who plays Selimene and plays Philomena, uh, mm -hmm. she was having horrible fan issues. But luckily, I had a thought. Because I guess I had to deal with it with Gaiden, uh, with my son, not the character on the show. Uh, and uh, I told her, look, okay, you know those, and this is a good trick, by the way. You know those uh, those freezer packs, right? The yeah. Chemical, the blue boxes. 
All right. Yeah. So you get your laptop, you put it like on top of like just a little table, something, anything, um, and you put you stack those uh, those freezer packs underneath it. And in a pinch, you can put it just whatever near wherever the fan intake is. But it basically acts as kind of a jury rigged cooling system. And wow. it shut her fan down immediately. She thought it was voodoo. So <laughs> you work for free out of appreciation. That's not really true. But <laughs> so there you go. A long, boring technical story to begin our, our conversation about Dota. Yeah, that's an amazing story. Yeah, that just shows you can use any resource you have and make it work. <laughs> like there's no blame on technical issues because if you can find a solution, you can do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. We called it guerrilla animation. You know, it just like it, it was almost like we were making an independent film for four hundred years. It was it was pretty crazy, but fun. Wow. Like I know, like uh, Gerald told us, uh, our friend Gerald Rivers, he told us like some of the crazy things he's had to do, like with like improvising for his voiceover roles. But that's wild. <laughs> We've never yeah. heard anything like that. So when you guys did the the voice acting, and the engineers had to ask each actor about their equipment. Do they have to go over a lot of testing to prep for the voice acting? Yep. My goodness. So for each actor, there was probably a four-hour session uh, with the engineer um, just to prep, just to make sure that everything was, was right. That was on top of the engineer reviewing the specs and then kind of reviewing the audio that was coming in and kind of going yay or nay. Um, and it was everything from figuring out, you know, where to set the gain and where to set the where to sit the microphone. And is there a better spot in your house, or are you plugged into the internet? Uh, it was like talking to to tech support. And then we would have to uh, give basically an extra hour, especially at first, um, so that when the actors came in to record, and by came in, I mean showed up on the internet to record we could address any technical issues that may have arisen there. Um, some of them couldn't resolve it. So in emergencies, we sent, uh, we had yes, Netflix to send out packs uh, to those actors with like, here's you know a, a computer and a microphone, here's everything, take it uh, mm -hmm. for a day so that you have it. Um, mm -hmm. But even then, you know, you'd have to do a setup. It was just, it was, it was a lot of effort. We appreciate it. Yeah, we definitely. <laughs> <laughs> like, would you say like recording and shows during like the pandemic, like it's, if you were to like on a scale of one to 10, it's probably like a hundred right now to try <laughs> and get all this done and, and to get, get it done within like a concise time frame as well. Yes. So yeah, it, it wildly um, inflates the, uh, the, the, the time factor because you know in pre-pandemic and i guess now uh you could bring in multiple actors and have them in scenes together if you wanted to like or you could just bring them in for half an hour and just cycle them through and you knew you'd be done you know somebody comes in for one line they come in they sit down you get them like comfortable it's 15 minutes and you're gone right but it doesn't matter how many lines you have you know, in the in the pandemic phase of, of recording the show, it was at least 
an hour to two hours, no matter what was going on for every single actor. And we attempted to do uh, having multiple actors at once on the system, and it just kept crashing it out uh, because it just was not designed to handle that kind of bandwidth. Um, the actors all, you know, had to record their uh, their sessions locally in case of a crash, and they would send us all the the local files. Um, it was just we learned a lot, and it was I, I think that the most difficult thing about it was, you know, it, it's it's one thing to be set up on a situation like this and have a conversation, and you know, for me to try to direct you, right. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it's very different from being able to sit in a room, right? To sit next to you and have a conversation with you about it, or to really have a dynamic exchange about it. And where you know we we benefited from the early days of the of the project because you know I I made it uh, a priority to mm. bond with the actors. I don't mean like barbecues at my house. I mean like um, you know. Spending the time with them when they came in to really talk, like, and I, you know, I took them to dinner. I kind of pitched out like the entire show, the entire show, like all the way through the end of, of book three, um, and you know, tried to build in each of them a sense of who they were and who they were to each other, try to turn it into a cast, and that mm -hmm. paid off massive dividends when we got into the pandemic phase of this thing, because by that point, at least, there was a, a sort of a shorthand. Um, and everybody knew each other and everybody was on the same page. And, you know, from that perspective, it was, it was difficult, but it was great. Wow. All that prepping paid off for the, during the pandemic. God, mm -hmm. when, from our voice acting friends, they just tell us they get the job, they go in, they do the job and they leave mm -hmm. you a relationship with them yeah. and put the work and it paid off for during the pandemic, gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not a thing. It was like they were telling me when I was I was doing all that. They're like, you know, this is the first time, this is all of them, like in our voice acting careers that anybody has tried to, you know, invited us to a dinner and pulled the cast together and kind of uh, uh, treated it this way. But in live action, which is where I came from, that's what you do, right? Like you, you want to build the esprit de corps among the cast. You want to make them feel like a cast and make them feel valued. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I did it out of blind ignorance you know, about like how things were usually done, um, but with the best of intentions. And it, I, I think it worked out in every conceivable way. I think I got better performances out of everybody. Um, I, I think the, the sessions were just a lot more, both more productive and more fun. Um, and, you know, it's, why not? Why not treat people like you value their their time and their you know their creative participation? Silly me. <laughs> I think it is really important for them to have relationships because there are a handful of dual characters that had humorous banter in there, like yeah. Davia, Marana, Luna, and that other character that was in a prison with her. The one that was acting like a Casanova-like character. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who was voiced by Troy Baker. Really? Yep. It's like, yeah, Hiro, Hieronimo was uh, voiced by uh, by Troy Baker. Uh, and he was really terrific. Um, and it just, he just, Troy is, is far more, he is far more than just the invoker. 
Um, he is, uh, he's, he's extremely funny. Um, he is like the, he and JB, uh, JB Blunt were vying for class clown. Uh, I have, I have some snippets of things involving JB that will make their way to the internet. Uh, <laughs> that are, uh, that are quite, quite fun, but yeah. Troy was was great, and the fact they all knew each other, I think, just just helped. And they could just, they could hear each other, you know, like when they would, even if they were recording recording separately, they could they could get a sense of where the other person would be, yeah. which was great. Troy is such a versatile actor, like just his range and, and what he's able to do. Like, there's so many characters I've heard him do over the last decade plus, and it's like. Wow, that's him. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. Yuri Lowenthal as well. It's like this is really amazing. So yeah, no, they're they're all great. Like I could go on for days about each and every one of them. So you said that you guys did a production of Dota pre-pandemic. When did you start writing for Dota then? <laughs> yeah, like okay. way way back then. Uh, I got hired in. The end of October of 2018, and I started the first week in November. Um, I I needed to have my pilot script to Studio Mir by January of 2019. Um, so I had to figure out the whole show, like everything that we saw, like and, and obviously like there are details that change, but understanding fundamentally what's the story. Right, like who are these characters? What's the journey they're on? Like, what's the big problem? Who's really? I don't want to use the word villain, but like, but who's really the villain? Like, what is? How does all of this stuff tie together? What's the mm -hmm. world building? Like, how does the lore all work together? What does all mean? Like, I had basically two weeks to figure that out, <laughs> and then like I had to like get my writing staff together and just start breaking and writing very quickly. Um, they had been uh, doing visual development um, for. Mm -hmm probably six months prior to when I started. And, okay. you know, my challenge was I, I was, I had permission to completely throw everything out on the visual development side, but I decided that would be insane. <laughs> and I, I said, you know what, let's keep it. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna keep all the toys and I'm gonna arrange them differently and we're gonna play a different game. And I'm going to make a couple of like targeted key changes in terms of um, the looks of characters, or and then certainly like in terms of story, how everything was playing out and who was most important. Um, but I, I wanted to live inside of the, the box that Studio Mir had defined because, you know, I, it was early enough in my process that I could still do that. Mm -hmm. And also, I didn't want to do anything that was going to jeopardize uh, Studio Mirror's work. And if I could take that piece off of it and kind of take um, the, the heavy lifting of how to make it all work together and put it on me, uh, that would be ultimately better for the, for the show. So I, I, I didn't throw everything out. Uh, but yeah, I started writing in November of 2019. Um, we were... I'm sorry, November of 2018, we were done writing. Uh, I want to say November of 2019. 
So oh. we wrote all the way through. Um, you know, we 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 wrote all twenty four episodes in that time, and we were just cranking them out. So we were we were done with all of that like well 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 in advance of the show even even dropping. Um, and there were things that we simply did not know and could not anticipate. Uh, we had zero idea that Marcy would break the internet. We had no clue. No <laughs> clue. But we, we loved her and she was awesome. I mean, we, she was like, you know, one of our favorites. But it never occurred to us or anyone that you know, the, the, the fans, that the Dota players and the people who watch the show would just flip out for her in the way that they did. <laughs> to the point where, uh, you know, that thing that happens at the end of season two, uh, we, uh, we had a little bit of a gut check. And it was like, oh, am I going to get death threats? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's important. So we're going to stick with the program. Um, you know, we uh, if we made any adjustments at all, it was just being very sure when we kind of got into the into the animation phase and and all of that um, that uh, we were we were uh, giving her her due um, mm-hmm. in the in the moments that that followed and kind of stretching that out a little bit like letting like making sure that all the emotions landed because what we realized was given the reaction to her from season one that you know nothing was going to make somebody who was upset about uh, her death not upset but regardless it was still important to have the moment to process it and communicate uh that that we understood that that process of grief and also you know for me it it was it was really one of like the first big instances i think especially like in that season where um we let the characters process grief which is obviously a huge theme in the show Mm -hmm. Um, that was the moment i think that brought that home and that's why that moment was so important um, but yeah, we had, we wrote, you know, all of all of that before anybody saw anything. In fact, it was my God, like well over a year before anybody saw anything. But that's very normal for animation. I am told that you know you write and then two years later your show comes out. It's just because the turnaround <laughs> of animation is that long. That's what I noticed in Dota. There's a lot of buildup and things that you don't expect to the point where Mikhail and I were thinking, okay, we have to look back at previous episodes and see if there are any hints that we're foreshadowing this to happen. Like, my goodness, I was not expecting Marcy's uh, end. I thought she was going to be there forever because it seemed, it just seemed like it. She was just part of Morana. Yeah, it just really subverted our expectations and it's just, the way the storytelling is just, it's so layered. Like, thank you. I know you and I, we talked about that before. I was like, you know, with how it was written out, like everything has a callback to something else. And it's just amazing how from episode to episode to episode to episode, like there's no drop in consistency or quality. It's just building 
and building from there. And it's that's exceptional writing that you've been Thank doing. You. Thank you. Um, yeah, look, we 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 designed the show uh, to reward rewatching. Um, it will actually be designed to do two things. Number one, we structured it so that if you start watching for reasons you cannot explain, you might start watching episode one, suddenly realize you're watching episode five. Mm-hmm. Think I have to go to the bathroom, but I don't know if this is a good place to stop. And I don't know how I got here. Um, and the other thing was to make sure that when you went back and you rewatched it, you got something out of it again, right? That you got either either information that you didn't have, or you got context that you didn't have, or you got an oh crap moment that you didn't see. That didn't seem like an oh crap moment at the time, right? But suddenly it's very much an oh crap moment. Um, you know, it was, I, I think it, it's going to be interesting as, as time goes on to see what happens when more people, if more people, I hope, you know, go back and, and rewatch from the beginning um, and begin to understand how the end, how even the end contextualizes the beginning of the show um, and the function some things uh, serve. I mean, we ended up, you know, we, I think we ended up paying off literally everything that we set up. Like when, when we got down to, I was so excited because I didn't know if we were going to stick the landing or not. But um, when we got to the end of, of, uh, of book three and getting into those final scenes, uh, you know, when, when she drops the Archonicus on the shopkeeper and it's, you know, divine favor and it worked, I was like, touchdown dance (laughs) you know it's like oh well okay got that uh there's only one thing that i left hanging maybe just one nope just one thing that i left hanging um in the show and i left it hanging for a reason Um, other than like there's obviously the little moments that are at the end right yeah suggestions of things but there was an element from earlier in the show that i left hanging uh but It was uh, it was a lot of it was a lot of work. It was a lot of thinking and planning, but it was also fun. Um, I was just showing uh, to uh, I, I do I participate in a writing program for for veterans that the Writers Guild runs. Mm-hmm. And you know, last night we were having a group session, and I kind of took them through our whole process on the second season of the book two finale, and showing them like, okay, here's our forty pages of notes you know, on everything. And here's how it links back to 40 pages of notes per episode that goes before it and how all of that kind of builds up. There's like a novel that is sitting underneath everything you see on the show, but that was the only way we could build it so that it could it could pay off in those ways. At the end of book three, Mikhail and I, we had so many questions and we thought, you know, this is the end. I feel like I got closure, but I am wondering about a lot of things. And we totally thought it was the end of the show. And then we heard there was going to be a book four. And we're like, no, what? What? There's more? Are things going to be explained? And well, we don't officially know. We're not going to put that out there. We don't officially know. Oh, oh, There's oh. no confirmation. <laughs> I don't know. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Yeah, no, no, look, I, I, in, in all absolute 100% honesty, nobody has, like, had a conversation about it. 
Um, you know, the the only thing I can tell you for sure and certain is uh, if there were a, a book for, we can talk about what that means, but uh, if there were a book for, I know what it is. Um, and it is, at least elements of it are strongly suggested by uh, by what's in those final two scenes. Um, but it is, it would be a, a different story, a related story, a sequel story, uh, spinning off of what happened in the first three books. Mm. You can probably guess who uh, one of the, the protagonists would be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert, she has a nice smile. <laughs> Were you surprised that, like, even to this day, like if you go on like forums and such, like people are still theorizing and like, like how the end, like what happened in the end and like where it can go from there. Like most shows, like you don't see people sticking with like, they're like, okay, we watched this, we're over it. But like with this, the way you guys wrote it, it's like people are still trying to figure out to, to now, like what's going on? Where can this go? How does this tie back into the lore of Dota? Like, how does that feel, like, knowing that people are still that passionate? Oh, that feels great. That feels like a success to me. I mean, you know, the maxim is always leave them wanting more. Um, and, you know, I think that even if there were never a book four, then the ending of book three is successful because what it did was it, A, left you wanting more, and B, it invited you into the conversation about the story and about the characters. And if I can excite you and the rest of the audience into wondering, what does Philomena do next? What the heck just happened uh, with Marana, right? And just keep you engaged in that way, I win. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's, I win Dota. Um, but, you know, it's where it, I mean, I don't want to like, really kind of get into the, the details. I will say this much, that... And I think people are starting to see this too, that over the three seasons, I gradually built into the core idea behind the game of the ancients and who they were and what they wanted and what they meant. Um, I, you know, I, I did the thing at the very beginning of the pilot where I said, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this. Okay, now on with the show. Um, just to kind of set the stage, but making it part of the drama was always very important to me. Um, and, you know, I think we're the, we're the, we're the story to continue. Ultimately, like, that's a, that's a, that's a very important thing that the audience, I think, is now prepared to deal with, or they are more prepared to deal with. We have now literally encountered not just the rocks and the, the creeps um, and the effects of the ancients in our world. We've encountered the ancients. Uh, and it, things, are, things are different now. In the end of book three, <clears throat> I was so intrigued that I literally looked into Dodo floor oh, and God, looked I'm up so many and then they and was wondering okay how were they made how were they created what was the process and there were only like, oh so much information i was thinking how did they make a show based off this information <laughs> and just made it so huge and prominent within 
three seasons of like so many, many, the lotuses. I was just blown away by that. And that's also what made me want to rewatch the episode to see if there's like anything explaining about that lore. And now I'm very interested in Dota. And I'm just wondering why did Netflix pick Dota to make an animation on it? Because I haven't heard about it for a long time. Mm-hmm. I don't know that many people that talk about it. So well, it's outside of like tournaments, like it's it's very very prominent in the, the esports scene. So. Yeah, it's believe it or not, it's a, we we always talk about it as it is the most popular game in the world that you've never heard of. Um, you know, in uh, in Asia and in you know uh, much in Eastern Europe, especially and much of Western Europe, that game is honking huge. It has like, or at least when we were doing the show, like when we were writing the show, it had the largest player base of any game on the mm-hmm. planet. Uh, and you know, they definitely showed up to watch. And of course, it was also a little, you know, intimidating. Because there's a lot of people with very strong opinions, um, but uh, but yeah, but in America, for whatever reason, Dota never quite became a thing. Nobody can really explain that. Um, it's just it's just the way that it is. So you're not alone. Um, in terms of reconciling that lore, I mean, I just it's, it's one of the reasons why I had to start small, you know, and and build into it. I had to start with the things that were graspable. Um, and just come to my own conclusions about what happened in the Knights of the Woods and how all of that worked. And, you know, what is, what is the, what is the event at the heart of it that makes me care? And, you know, how are we dealing with the consequences in a way that feels present, um, and has some kind of an emotional value to it? You'll notice, by the way, that I still haven't laid out the story of exactly what happened. A thousand years ago, I'm I, I'm still sitting on that. That is that is that is a, actually. So I'll say there are two threads. Um, I like I never uh, I've hinted at a lot. I've suggested a lot. Um, I, I think of it as it's like impressionism, right? There are things that you can come to understand about what might have happened a thousand years ago and who Selimene was and who Mene was by watching mm-hmm. the third season and going, oh. I'm I'm starting to kind of get what may have gone down, mm-hmm. but there are there are pieces of that story that are missing that that I think I hope you know are implied right like when um, when Philomena is doing the experiments to figure out you know holy crap how do we stop this thing what happens mm-hmm. next mm-hmm. and she's realizing what the what the second moon did and it was, you know you know mother Mane what did that do to you. Uh, and you know you connect that back to what Selimene says to Fimrin before she dies. You know, you were mad once too. You'll be mad again. Praise the moon of Mene. Um, mm-hmm. There's just a, a lot, and I think I felt like for I to come out and just say, at least in in this season, at the end of this story, and here's exactly what happened. It's boring. But <laughs> I, you know what I mean? It's like it's not that what happened was boring, but I think it's more. It, it undercuts the um, it undercuts your engagement with the story, with those mm. moments. If you just hear about it, versus doing the math yourself and trying to figure out how you feel about it, you know, when it becomes important to story moving forward, then I'll get into it. 
if it's just I'm relating backstory now, then I'm I'm not. Okay. So speaking of Silamene and Mad, I remember you saying earlier that you don't know who the villain is in the story. And for a while, I really thought it was Silamene. Like she was a crazy woman, very obsessed, narcissistic. She was selfish like so selfish and then you're thinking then invoker he's like the good guy he just wants to save his daughter and then oh i never trusted the invoker there's <laughs> just something <laughs> off about him i'm like well, he knows too much <laughs> like, like he's good in his own head <laughs> we're good and then in book three towards the end you see Philomena do like a little smile and they reminded me of Philomena and I was like, no, who's the villain? <laughs> now, I will, here's one thing I will also say for sure and for certain, and I don't consider this a spoiler because I, I think it is, to me, it's, it's bedrock. Although I get it, right? I had like a concern, I thought, but then I decided I, I on some level, I didn't care. Um, is there a world where people interpret that smile and what she says as something maybe dark and threatening. Um, and uh, for a minute there, I thought about pulling back on that a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, but ultimately what I decided is over the course of those episodes, and really like from, from, from book one, when you first meet her, right? She is the center of good. She is as pure good a character as there is uh, in the show. Like her hands are not dirty in any way whatsoever, where I can probably point to any other character you want to name and say, that's where their hands are dirty, except maybe Aura. Mm -hmm. um, and she doesn't have hands. Uh, but Philomena is who she is. And I just feel like or in, and look, I, it, everything is always going to be like, how does the audience interpret it? But to me, when Philomena smiles, it is, I hope, and I think some people take it this way, it is intended as reassurance. Um, and the thing about saying, do you love me is, everybody who says that means something different, right? Like when the invoker says it at the end of book one, which is like, you know, I think probably the, the best mic drop on the show. <laughs> uh, like, he almost literally, I wanted to, like, have him just have a mic and animate it. Drop it. Do you love me? And then we're out. Um, I mean, he definitely means it as, screw you. Hetty. Hetty. Mm -hmm. But, but earn. And then when Selimane says it, it's a very... You know, it is feed my ego. Tell me mm -hmm. I'm the most important thing in the world. And then when Philomena says it, it can mean something else entirely, right? Do you love me can also mean what are you capable of, right? Like, um, and, and who are you and who can you be? And, you know, or do you trust me? Uh, I mean, it can mean all kinds of things, but I prefer to believe that uh, she means something beautiful. I mean, I am entertained 
by you know the idea that you know she could you know be like the, the that she could be a villain i just to me like i first of all i know what happens but secondly it's like, <laughs> i just i think that the show or the that that book and this particular story needed to end with a sense of hope mm -hmm. not menace right like the messages like yeah bad things happen and we learn to deal with it and life goes on and it's hard but we do um and that's okay you know i think having that show end on any note other than it was worth it and good can happen right um there's a uh and i think somebody caught it like i was was lurking in uh, the anime reddit um Somebody caught it. There's a uh, a moment in the second season that you, I mean, it's so small, like you probably not even think about it. Uh, it's Fimran and she's in disguise and she's in the wagon with the humans in the caravan. And she's with that family, with the dad and the baby. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's telling her the story about the, the, the tree of lore and how like, you know, the, the squirrel completely screws up the tree, right? Uh, and, you know, the, um, the moral of the story is like, you know, uh, you know, even, even, even in tragedy, you know, beautiful things can happen. You know, that's the, that's kind of the moral of the show. The theme is dealing with grief, but the moral of the story is like, yeah, you have to live with the things that happen, but even in the shadow of those things, uh, good things can happen. Beautiful things can happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is why I think both Mikael and I were very accepting to the ending because we did feel like a sense of closure for a lot of the characters' stories. And that last line of the episode, it was, like you said, there's a lot of interpretation to it, which is why we had so many questions. Like, did it mean this? Did it mean that? We don't know. But maybe, maybe we'll find out later on in the future. Mm hmm Evie. <laughs> I, I was theorizing, like, because we, we kept going back and rewatching the last season just to try and, and see, like, did we miss this? Did we miss that? And one of the things that, and I'm trying not to, you know, not to dive into spoilers, but like, there's a part where, uh, you know, Philomena is asking the invoker about, oh, do you remember the house that was, you know, it was built. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, yeah, I had it built perfectly. She's like, yeah, perfectly the way you saw it. And like, I was thinking, again, not spoilers, but when certain things happen to get us to a certain point, I was like, huh, maybe that could be why. Because <laughs> she got to see how, you know, how things were um, created. It's, it's, that's, that's like, there's definitely an explanation for for what happened, but I will I will I will say this as carefully as I can. A couple of things: one, um, that if you really sit back and think about what those two characters are saying to each other, one thing that you're you're absolutely right about is that they are in fact subtextually having a conversation about rebuilding the universe and everything that just happened between them right mm -hmm. um 
and the invoker kind of coming to a conclusion that he should have come to long ago. Then in a way, I think in his heart, he knew, right? Um, that, you know, he, he, that she cried over that dollhouse because it wasn't the dollhouse as she saw it, right? But in the beginning of the season, when Terrorblade comes to him at the tower, he says, you know, my daughter would never accept a world made by you, right? It's like, it's a, it's a little bit of a callback. Um, but in terms of the mechanics of, of what happened, it was literally just a reboot of everything that the, that was in Marana's head, like as the, as the world worm, as the eye, right? All of that information, all of that data, like hard reboot, boom, right? Back to like, you know, it's like back to default. Like there, <laughs> there it goes um, with the spell actually being cast by, uh, you know, the, uh, by Philomena and the invoker. Um, so there is, there is nothing in what Marana made that did not exist before Marana made it. Oh. Okay. So I will I will I'll leave that. You said that very well. Yes. Yeah, we got it. <laughs> <laughs> Food for thought. You look so satisfied. I, you know, I was wondering. So I was like, it, because every conversation, you could take it at the surface level, but there's so much subcontext to every conversation that's being had, like mm -hmm. between characters. So it's like, and especially anytime Invoker talks, I'm like, yeah, I'm listening. What are you really saying? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's funny, I think I'm going to look at it now to sort of see if it's still there, but uh, on my my Twitter profile, mm -hmm. if you if you look at my location, it says in your head, three levels down. And I think that's that's a pretty good description of the invoker's location in your head, three levels down. <laughs> when I first saw the trailer of Dota, I totally thought is going to be focusing on Davion and Marana and just seeing how the world was built and I just wanted to see more and I was so surprised by how much was put into less than 12 episodes per season per book that was amazing yeah the uh, world the world building within that first book or first season was truly unlike any show I've seen in recent, let's say, okay, let's give away our ages, decades. <laughs> like, because most, in, in the way that the story was, was playing out, the world building, the way the story played out, the characters were, like most shows, they do a lot of, okay, I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to tell you everything. This was like, I'll tease you with this, and then I'll let you, you know, give you enough to make you think on your own. And, and see how things naturally progress. And I think I really like that with the show too, is there was natural progression. You know, you got to see the different aspects of, okay, this had a consequence for that. Mm -hmm. And then, 
okay, this group is dealing with this, this group is dealing with that. Whereas like other shows are just like, oh yeah, this is what happened to them. This is what they're thinking. This is what they're feeling. And there's nothing left to the imagination. So I really like the way everything was like created. Laid out. Yeah. Like I'm used to stories where they dump you with lore in the beginning. Or Or they slowly reveal it throughout seasons. Like One Piece? Yes. (laughs) Like a thousand episodes in. Like, oh, that's what the grand line. Okay. (laughs) But with Dota Dragon's Blood, I thought I had an understanding of the lore in the first book. And then you just explained more in the second. And then more in the third, especially with the moons. I was like, what? Moons? Like... There are stories behind the moons? What? <laughs> yeah, right? It's like, and that's the thing. It's You, you could not um, digest everything if we tried to lay it out all at once. Also, I mean, look, there was a lot of things about the show that were, on my part, they were a little experimental. I, I have certain um, tastes in things. Um, I try very, very hard not to put expository dialogue into characters' mouths. I don't like it. I don't like it when they explain things to each other that they should know, or that the only reason that they're saying it is because the audience needs to know it, right? Um, That, to me, is just crappy writing. And it's like, now I would rather uh, put the audience in a position where um, the audience is doing the math than I'm doing the math for them because then they're doing the math on the things that that matter to them mm-hmm. rather than me saying okay well this is the explanation well no honestly like you know people do things and how we interpret their actions should be a, a function of um of the result and their reaction yeah. to the result that tells us things and sometimes we get, you know, disguised expository dialogue in the sense that characters will talk about things that are the past, right? Or things that are important to them. But it has to feel, um, to me, it has to feel organic. It is, you know, much less is is more. Uh, and I, you know, I designed, you know, every episode of the of the first season in a way to just lay out and dramatize a different part of the world and mm-hmm. what it was and, and how it worked, right? Like um, there wasn't, I don't, I don't know that there was, there was an episode that, that stayed in place. You know what I mean? Like it just, everything was like, oh, here's something is, is new. When we get to the, the finale, well then we bring everything together and literally everything together in the mic drop at the very end of it. Yeah. And I just don't know that it works as well if everybody is constantly explaining their their feelings. Now, I do cheat. So here's how I cheat. Marcy is a cheat, right? Like, because Marana lays out everything to her and works through her process. But that was, the thing about that was, I tried to approach that not as, and now Marana is going to explain all of her feelings. Um, and Marana is going to explicate everything that's going on. It's what Marana is doing is expressing her conflict. Mm-hmm. And it helps the math in the sense that it gives the audience a chance to kind of get inside of her head without being told what she's feeling or where she's going, right? Because it's conflicting things. It's always, it's this or it's this. 
but it's this. No, it's that. But of course, it's that. Nope, it's this, because that's how we think, right? None of us can say, like, with any degree of, of certainty, you know, what we feel or what we think about anything, like, in a, in a definitive, we can pretend to. Like, I can say, like, you know, I love my children. I do love my children. But, but at times, like, I want to put them in a rocket and fire them at the moon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, and I think expressing that <laughs> is kind of what made the scenes work. Um, but yeah, I really wanted to build the world kind of a piece at a time. And I, and I knew, like, I couldn't just lay out all that stuff with the ancients and the moon right away. I mean, I can't even imagine what that scene would have looked like. It was, it was already hard, like, because we had to have, um, you know, the invoker takes, like, takes a moment, you know, to just explain to Davion, like, the pillars of creation. Okay, at some point you have to do that, but at least it was organic, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the invoker is explaining this to, to Davion because Davion does not understand and must understand, and I have already given the audience context. He's had this mm-hmm. encounter with the thunder and they've said a lot of things that are very mysterious and possibly confusing. And then the invoker pulls it all together for him and he puts it in a bow and he says, no, oh, by the way, what it really means is you're gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> so have a great day. <laughs> for a while, we were focusing on the ancients, the dragons, the moons, and then was it in book two? Bring in the sun, bring in the eye. I'm like, more? What? And <laughs> you talking about how most characters don't explain things. They just express how they're feeling and what they want. And I think a really good example was the in the kingdom where Marana's from, the advisor, and he was looking for his son, little son, little son. And he just starts explaining what that is, what the eye is, and talks about the different, what is, uh, universes, realities. I'm like, oh, what? We're going into multiverses? (laughs) And then in book three, we did that. And it just called back to that scene. I was like, okay, I really like how things are explained here. (laughs) Yeah, we literally were like, sitting there like we started from book one with something we thought we knew where it was going to by book three we're like i need to go and study some philosophy some frederick because i need to understand like did we just go through eternal recurrence yes we did we went to reddit and we saw all types of theories explanations and we were going through a rabbit hole we're like mm, i think we should stop for now <laughs> i just went to google explain that ending <laughs> yeah, we did a um we did some math and i'm gonna tweet about this at some point but um probably fairly soon but uh we did the math and we are pretty convinced that in book three episode two like after the invoker hits the button on the forge and we come back to the invoker with Selene and Philomena and they seem like a happy little family. Uh, that that is easily the longest time cut in the history of entertainment. Um, because with 
And there's no guarantee, by the way, that that was in fact uh, experiment 12,403, but let's just say for the sake of the argument that it is, um, it was roughly 14 trillion years <laughs> from the end of like the destruction of our universe to the rest of book three. And then it was another from um, from when Marana says goodbye to Davion, spoiler alert, at the end of book three to finding herself back in Falfell. And she only experienced it as a moment. Um, mm -hmm. But it was technically, technically seven billion years. So the third season doesn't take place. When we find ourselves, when Marana finds herself in that universe, she is not in an alternate universe. She is in the only universe that exists. And from the Invoker's point of view, relative to where they knew each other, uh, she is in the future. It's like far in the future. Um, but every other universe is gone. Like those branches have been cut off the tree. It's like, it is the only tree. And then it gets cut off again. I mean, and then it becomes like a whole other honking tree. But, you know, when the invoker is explaining to, to Philomena about how many times he went through it and how many universes he had to go through to figure out just how to make one, like that was time had to pass. So the invoker that we meet in the third season, when we come back between, you know, episode two and episode three, is 14 trillion years old. The guy has been around. <laughs> you know, I was wondering about his age, but geez, I was, <laughs> I didn't think of that, that many zeros. <laughs> many, many zeros. <laughs> Wow. So are you saying that um, the Invoker encountered these characters over and over and over again, and he just had different experiences with them, and that's why he was kind of like <clears throat> sort of able to predict things of these characters and know what they're going to do and kind of do like a 3D chess with them. You're going to do this. 3D? That's like 4D. <laughs> like, I mean, dimensions. <laughs> um, actually... So, and you know, I, I reserve the right to change my mind, but um, <laughs> I believe that 12,403 was the only universe where Philomena made it to adulthood. Um, and that in every other universe, uh, she either was not created, things went very differently, um, or she died as a child, or something else happened. 12,403 is unique in that it is the only universe create, he created where he got rid of the second moon uh, to stabilize the orbit of the moon containing the ancients, which for some reason, hmm, for some reason, made it possible for Philomena to survive to adulthood. Um, and, you know, there, there, there are messages and there are clues that are buried in things. Um, she, in, I think it's in episode six, 
where she is looking at the model of the planet and the moons. And she talks about stabilizing the, the mad moon's orbit. So this is, and this is another thing I'm going to tweet about. It's uh, th this show is weirdly like the, the hardest science fiction show you'll probably see this year. Um, because, you know, we did a lot of research on what's called the three body problem in astrophysics, which is whenever you have like three bodies, like trying to orbit each other, those orbits are inherently unstable. Uh, and, you know, really bad things can happen, right? So in universes, well, in the universes where that world existed and those moons existed, um, and in the first universe that we were in, like that unstable orbit helped the moon to break apart, but that those orbits were always unstable. Um, they probably stabilized a little after the moon exploded, but in 12,403, the moon's orbit was stable, Philomena, survived to adulthood. She still has the rot, but she survived. Um, so there may or may not be a link between that stability and, um, this is me talking around things, between that stability and what happened with her. As far as the Invoker's in encounters with everybody else, this was, I think, the first universe where that mattered to him. Like once she was gone, you know, a thousand years in the past of, of any of those universes, he was like, nope, we're doing it again. <laughs> Every single time. Um, but I think, look, I mean, you very clearly will understand what, what I'm going to say because you're holding her in your lap. I mean, there is, there's only so much loss, I think, that, that we can bear. And you know, for for the invoker, it's, you know, losing someone that important to him, you know, over and over and over again. By the time he gets to the universe where she survives that long and he has her for a thousand years, he's tired. Yeah. And he will do anything to make it so that he doesn't have to do it over again. Anything, anything at all, including killing everybody. He'll do it again. Um, and as for how he manipulated everybody, he's just, he is excellent at understanding how people will behave. And he does not have to manipulate people. Terror Blade manipulates people, right? Yeah. The invoker looks at you, understands what makes you tick, may or may not offer one stimulus or another, and then trusts you to be who you are and make the decisions you will make. Uh, and because those decisions are predictable and he can see like how they will turn out um, he is very good at selecting the proper stimulus or just moving you know another piece in another direction and then standing back his his plans don't require everything working out like in some ruby goldberg device kind of way where this has to happen and this has to happen and this has to happen he's like nope I just know that people are who they are uh, and they will behave in predictable ways. And if they behave in predictable ways, then I can trust them to, to do those things. Like he knows, like once he meets Vimran, he knows what she'll do. He knows, he just gets a read on Marana. He knows what she'll do. He knows she's gonna take that Lotus, those Lotuses to the Night Silver Woods, I mean, to the to Codewig and hand them over. He knows that. Um, and he's also fairly certain, even though she doesn't get asked, 
right? He's also fairly certain that Soleimani is going to say no, right? It's like, mm. you know, the, it's the, the exact circumstances. He doesn't need to know that Luna's there and doesn't even ask at all. Right, and the Luna says, "Yes, I'm going to do it." It's like it, there is there is no universe in which that box doesn't open, and if for some reason it doesn't, he's already got a plan. He's just he's got a backup because he just he thinks about those contingencies all day long. One rule that we had in the writers' room was um, the invoker can never lose. Right. Isn't it like the most annoying thing? Like when you have like the big bad and he just gets his ass kicked every single time. And you're like, how? How is that possible? He can never lose. Uh, I think the only time that he comes even close to what we would describe as a loss is uh, when he is in the fourth episode of book three. When he goes and he fights the, uh, the arc warden. And that's it. And frankly, we don't know if he wouldn't have been able to pull that out or not, because Philomena showed up, right? Uh, yeah. So who the heck knows? So that was a draw. <laughs> that was a tie. <laughs> he, he, he never loses. That wow. really puts in perspective when you say the invoker never loses, because that, what, last smile? Was it a smile? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. And it wasn't just gas. <laughs> <laughs> I really like how you explained about the invoker that he doesn't manipulate. He just knows the stimuluses and knows and trusts them that they'll do what he knows they'll yeah. do. Well, I would say also too, like going back to what you were saying about how he doesn't manipulate anyone, like and how terribly does because terribly rely and it's even pointed out he has to rely upon someone else to do literally whatever he needs to get done. Whereas like the invoker's like no. Okay, this is who you are. This is how you fit on this this this, this playing field. Okay, so um, I like yeah, I like that duality. Yeah. Do you play Dota? Oh God, no. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I briefly like flirted with the idea of of uh, of of trying it. And it was just, it was such a terrifying prospect. Like I was actually, uh, you know, joking with uh, Sir Action Slacks about doing a doing a session where I tried to learn to play Dota and mm -hmm. we would live stream it, like after the, the first season came out and I just, I never had time to sit down and, and do it. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a very intimidating game. I, I, I know things about it that like, I, I think like, you know, probably nobody in the world would know about it if they if they, if they haven't played the game. Um, but uh, yeah, I just it's a it's a, that's a that's a different world, man. Making you know what, making the show is difficult. Playing the game is hard. If you were ever to write for like another video game, I would definitely want you to write for Final Fantasy fourteen. <laughs> like that story is so similar in many ways. Yeah, yeah. It's impeccable writing, which like, is probably why we really like Dota. <laughs> we were, re yeah, we were super resonating with it because, like, we're we we uh, were Final Fantasy fourteen streamers, and so like 
we're looking at the story and we're like, man, there's so many parallels to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, because there's a whole aspect with the moon and Final Fantasy 14 and um, with the the gods in many ways, like terribly similar to Zodiac. Yeah. And yeah. Well, it's it's funny, like how many things just come out of asking questions, right? So, you know, you said you went and you looked at the uh, at the Dota lore, as I did, uh, and tried to understand, you know, where where things would come from. And one thing, and, and it's one of the reasons why I felt okay about keeping the, the visual development that had uh, had occurred before. Um, one thing that I noticed was the Night Silver Woods had maybe the most well-developed lore because there were multiple characters who were attached to it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a mystery in the center of it. And the mystery was, and it's not even explicitly stated in the lore, it may be now, but it was, why is it, you know, uh, why are there shrines to Mene? Why is there a temple of Mene and there are shrines to Selimene, right? Why are there two, but we only ever hear about one? You know, what mm-hmm. happened that, and it's never ever explained. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, and, you know, there's a whole, like, because of one of the events, there's this, there's animus between the invoker and Selimane. Well, where does that come from? Right. Mm-hmm. So I just started to start asking myself questions about where this stuff could come from. Like Marana's lore in the game is, well, she was from the Helio Imperium and then she went to the Night Silver Woods. And I wanted to make goddamn sense. Like, what happened? <laughs> How does that work? Are her powers different for some reason? And so literally just asking myself those questions and doing the thought experiments is what led me to, oh, okay, this is, this is how all this is going to go down. I bet the Dota fans, players really appreciate all the research he did on the lore and putting it into the story for Dota, the animation, like, that was a lot of research, like what you mentioned about the little bit of information between Salome and Mene. That's what I encountered too. And I was wondering, like, how did they make a story out of that? And you just explained because yeah. you had to find a story in that. Like, you had to find a reason, explain it. And I really appreciate that. It's a beautiful story. Thank you. And so how long did you have to research, like look into the Dota lore before you wrote the script for Netflix? I had next to zero time. I mean, you know, we, I guess I, I had a meeting on it in the middle of September of 2018. And, you know, uh, Netflix made an offer like a few days later and we started negotiating. Um, while we were negotiating, I started doing all of the research. So I got my hands on literally everything. I watched uh, lore videos that uh, Sir Action Slacks had done and that Angermania had done. And, you know, I just, I watched all of that stuff, trying to understand it and build out something that felt like a consistent uh, cosmology. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, reconcile it with the toys that were in my toy box already, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, oh, okay, how do I make all of that work? Um, and, it, you know, and then it was just trying to make decisions rapidly about which pieces of lore were going to be 
important. And in the first season, the most important pieces of lore were really everything with the the dragons and the dragon knights. And uh, most of that was in, invented and trying to make sense of um, some of that lore and mm -hmm. all the business with the with the moon and you know what happened uh with and some extrapolations of things that happened with that and it was like i it was just more than that was almost more than enough i know i wanted to hit like a little a touch of the of a encounter with the ancients and sort of make mm -hmm. it feel like oh that's scary what the hell is that um, right but i knew like it was biting off way more than i could chew <laughs> if I spent an episode trying to figure out, hey, what was that big honking rock that I saw where everybody was like having a blood orgy and like, you know, trying to effing eat me. Um, yeah. By the way, the, 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 <laughs> that, <laughs> that episode, episode three, we had like, sometimes we had very cute, uh, what we call room titles for episodes. Uh -huh. And uh, that episode, had uh, had two room titles. We couldn't decide which title we liked the best, so it had both. Uh, we referred to it both as Elf Orgy Massacre and <laughs> and Cannibal Blood Orgy. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> both catch my attention, that's for sure. <laughs> I was surprised by how uh, in book three, when the pieces of the moon were falling on the planet and it was affecting the people around them, I was surprised to see zombie-like <laughs> things happening. And I felt like it was sort of like a callback to really popular shows that were happening these past years. <laughs> well, the the deal with the with the ancients is that you know exposure to exposure to them changes you it corrupts you and you know that was what we saw in the cave in uh, in the first season right people who had been corrupted by it and it happens fairly quickly like even marana almost got drawn into it and then um you know she managed to she managed to resist it because of of what she is uh and there are some people who can just resist it, right? Like this is something that that nobody's commented on yet because it doesn't really manifest as anything other than I thought it was interesting. But we talked about it specifically in the room. Is that Bram is like one hundred percent immune to corruption by the ancients because he doesn't hear anything when they're going through Aras cave, like he doesn't, he gets nothing out of the, out of any sort of emanation from the ancients when they're in the hallway in Kishura's pad. And it's like, hey, you guys feel that? You know, and like what's there at the end of the hall? Mm -hmm. uh, and Bram's like, nope, got nothing. Uh, and then when they're in Hauptstadt in the, uh, in the new universe, and those rocks are falling and everybody else is getting corrupted, Bram is unaffected. And by, uh, by, you know, by a very strict reading of Dota lore, that actually makes him a Dota hero <laughs> because he's like, he can't be affected or he can't be corrupted uh, by, the, uh, by the ancients. Um, and in the, in the show, it's, 
it's you're not corrupted slash enslaved by the ancients, but it can also unlock uh, latent abilities or change you in in other ways. Um, mm-hmm. That's certainly the implication that we're making. Bram, it doesn't appear like was changed in any way. I think because Bram's always had powers, and his 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 power is is uh, is is different. I think it's more it's more subtle and it's just more human. It's it's not like he's never going to get the power to blow things up or to kill a lot of dudes. You know, that's just not his thing. And and why not? You know, it, you can be special and and the thing that makes you special is being a good person. Um yeah, it's just the bringing all that stuff together was 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 crazy. But it was also uh it was fun, man. Like the uh, and seeing like the battle in um Book three up to episode three, where they go into the village where everybody's been corrupted, and that fight that was so much fun to write, it was so much fun to put together and edit, uh, and you know, just work through the sound, um, and the score because it's just it's it's cool, man. It's just it's cool and it's scary and it's weird, right? It, it's just it is what it is. You know who had really cool fight scenes to me? <clears throat> to me, was the older Dragon Knight, mm-hmm. the one that had a scar on his face. And when he was using, I think it was magic to travel airway, airway in the air, it looked like he was using like a magic circle to propel himself forward as he was traveling. And he was doing that constantly. He has some badass moves, yo. <laughs> <laughs> Like with that sword and he like fly in the air and just slash down and he would get knocked back he'd like spit out blood or spit or whatever and he's like okay let's go again <laughs> yeah uh Caden who is uh who is named after my son Caden um yeah his uh he, he was also cool to to put together basically his armor has you know has magical is imbued with magic abilities that come from the dragons that he's slain so mm-hmm. he is using like air dragon abilities to basically boost himself through the air. They're like booster jumps, like using air dragon abilities, that kind of thing. And he's got like, you know, chaos armor that like you try to hit him and he's and he's elsewhere. Um, and, and then he's got that big ass sword, uh, which I'll tell you the origin of that sword was um, many, many moons ago when I was playing, uh, I was playing WoW. World of Warcraft, for those of you out there who don't know. Um, and uh, one of my buddies... Don't feel ashamed. Huh? Don't feel ashamed, fellow MMO <laughs> players here. <laughs> well, you know that in, in the game, it's like if you fall, right, a certain height, it doesn't matter how many hit points you have or anything. Like, you hit the ground, you die. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I remember we were talking in guild chat, and one of my buddies, like, fell off of a cliff, like, somewhere... And uh, he just typed into Guild Chat, you know, WTB, want to buy sword that procs gravity. <laughs> and so I was like, one of these days, I want to write into something, a sword that procs gravity, which is basically what Gaiden has. Like that sword, you know, hits the target with like all of like, his momentum, um, but with the exact momentum and mass of whatever he's hitting with it. So, you know, it will hit you hard, like if you're the size of Kishora, you know, or if you're the size of one of my six-year-olds, but it will hit you differently. 
mm -hmm. um, which is which is pretty cool. But we we uh, before we came up with his name, and I sort of finally like landed on just naming him after my my son, which actually took weirdly took some convincing, not by my son, but by my writer. Um, <laughs> our our code name for him was uh, JRPG. <laughs> because he has the big sword and he's really angsty. <laughs> but he <doesn't> have <laughs> I'm angsty. I'm the JRPG. This is my big sword. <laughs> Played by Anson Mount, who is Captain Pike on uh, Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And a heck of a guy. Wow. Maybe this is just me theory crafting, but is Caden. Or the wife that he had. And, and I'm just like... You don't want to say I'm it. just wondering, like, you know, because I, I don't want, you know, misinformation to get out there, you know, hypothetically speaking. I'm just saying, you know, is there, like, a connection between Caden and Davian? Because, you know, we were wondering about that. Is it because I think he looks like his mother? <laughs> How does he know his mother? <laughs> You know, like, I have questions. There was a time gap from when Caden left and, you know, when they ran for Falfell. Mm -hmm. It went over that. That was a lot of time went by. I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering. Uh, so, it, it's, it's funny that you, that you asked about that. So, um, before I get into that, I will say that the... Just uh, claim. Uh, the, um, well, actually, I'm going to... I'll hit that first because Caden is just—he's an interesting character, um, and you know we we designed him at first. Uh, we we or at least how we wanted him to function in the story was he is an antagonist. He is like he is the person that Davion could have been, mm -hmm. right? Um, or that Davion might be fated to become, mm -hmm. and. You know he is he's he's clearly not a bad guy even in that first appearance he's not a bad guy it's you know he's not out to kill davion and it's he does some things that are like wow that's horrible that's questionable but at the same time um you know i, I think it makes it i think it makes it clear that that from his point of view he is trying to save davion from something awful uh but he he knows him, he recognizes him, right? It's weird. Um, and at the top of the second season, you know, he is um, when he went when Davion is chained up, he is very sympathetic to him. He doesn't like what Father is doing, which is far and away beyond like what what Caden had been doing, and he promised that he would never allow it to happen again. Mm -hmm. And then. Yeah. You know, when they, you know, when they get to, uh, get to uh, Aroth's cave, right? And they have that little throwdown about what to do next. Um, and he had, and Caden has that scene with Rylai, right? Where she's like, she's sort of emphasizing that boy, right? Caden keeps calling him boy, right? That boy needs what he lost. Um, so, Caden also says, he makes a point of saying it was, uh, you know, 22 years 
earlier that Leeshan happened. And Davian says at some point about very recently sort of celebrating his his 21st birthday. Uh, and in the third season, I mean, there's obviously like the, all the scenes in, in Falfell that seem to connect the two of them. But, you know, we come back when Caden in the new universe dies. Right. You know my name. And Caden is thinking about the woman. Mm-hmm. He's her, and he looks at him, and it's like you know my name. Uh, and the the this was something where you know we were talking before about not spelling things out and letting people do math. I didn't right. want to spell it out. I, I I just I wanted people to to do the math and to kind of feel it and kind of wonder. Um, but you know I, I can say very definitively that you know yeah like Caden is one hundred percent his father, except that he didn't know. He didn't know until until Fal fell, and until he really saw him, you know, lying there and on his arms. He 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 didn't fully put it together. Like like he understood that this boy was the child of this woman that he loved that he lost. Right? He lost them. He lost her. Um. And I think, you know, up till that point, you know, Caden took a, a particular interest in Davion because of who his mother was, right? Mm-hmm. It's like I owe her something. I loved her, so I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take care of you. I'm gonna keep an eye out for you, kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't quite grok, like, oh, um, that's who you are to me. I tell you, really, truly, like saw his face uh and in a way and this is the this is the thing man it's like and and i think this goes for all of them like hammerblade in his own screwed up way uh gave everyone a gift right um and for Caden, like the truth that he gives him right that gift is uh I'm going to give you like a, give him kind of a second chance at life by fully understanding what it was that brought him to this place. Now, Terrorblade's intention was to turn Caden to that truth, mm-hmm. right? Was to turn that, was to use that regret against him. Um, but instead, that truth kind of set Caden free. I think that was true for Lena. I think it was true for Davion. I think it was true for everybody um, who was in Falfell. And that is, that's a theme. And it's, you know, truth can be hard to face, but if you can face it, it makes you better. Um, and it's both, it's sad, but at the same time, um, one of my favorite shots of the whole show is at, spoiler alert, Davion's funeral. Um, <laughs> and that the boy is standing there. And he's the boy from the pilot, the one that Davion meets and says, you know, your father was brave son of a bitch. Right, that's that kid. He's standing there at Davion's grave, and and Caden looks down at him. Right, and there's just that moment. He just—it's a subtle moment, blink and you miss it. But it's ridiculously important to his arc. It's the end of his arc. He looks down at that boy. He gets a look on his face that I I feel really communicates. I'm going to do all this differently. Um, at least I I hope that's what he. The other thing that's very strange about that moment is that 
the boy in the pilot was voiced by my son, Caden. So Caden was looking at Caden. <laughs> and the, uh, and the, the design of that boy character was like me sending like a hundred freaking photos of, of my son from like different angles of his head, his face, his like everything, like to Studio Mir and them doing a character design. So we call him Anime Caden. So, but yeah, it's it just, it, that relationship between them I thought was very important, but it was like, I, I, I didn't want to hammer anybody over the head with it. I think that was like one of the biggest things that Mikkel was questioning on. Like he, we had, we were talking about for like an hour. <laughs> she was like this. She's like, are you done? Are you done talking? Like, no, no. Mostly. <laughs> but you saying, explaining that Caden didn't know uh, who um, Davion's father really was until the end really puts it in perspective because I think that scene where he says he looks like his mother was like one of the most endearing expressions he ever made for Davion and that explains why because when I saw that I was thinking where was his compassion before when you chained him up okay <laughs> <laughs> he went through a lot <laughs> he went to hell <laughs> yeah. you know, hell changes a guy. <laughs> what else did you pick up on? We, I feel like we kind of touched, well, not in the conversation, but with the show. Like, I feel like we, we like, oh yeah, here are the dragons. We don't know the full extent of like what all they're capable of. We know they're, you know, they're the elements essentially, but there's that, you know. Okay, here's the too long didn't read on the on the dragons um, and the world worm, the eye, right? So, mm -hmm. and I, I have I have made efforts at, at somewhat explaining this uh, on Twitter, and I think in an AMA at one point. But look, the 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 reality, like our physical observable reality, is that all the forces of nature essentially bleed into one another. And there is some degree of differentiation that occurred because of the Big Bang. But at the time, the Big Bang, mm -hmm. um, everything was one thing, right? Mm -hmm. And you, over time, as the universe expanded and cooled, like things just became different, rules changed. And those are the dragons, right? Like they are all expressions of like of a fundamental thing like as as much as like the little baby dragons and the big dragons all kind of add up to their eldworm right so it's like all fire dragons are sort of slyrak all of the thunder um you know the the nuclear strong force the nuclear weak force uh you know electromagnetism gravity uh and then with all the arcane um elements you know uh, earth wind fire water like they are all part of one thing that just differentiated over time but they are all expressions of that thing um mm -hmm. and the world worm the eye is all of that like all of the eldworms sum up to the world worm but they are just kind of they understand the world worm exists but they don't fully grasp the world worm in the same way that i think the individual dragons can't quite grasp fully like their elder or we can't quite grasp uh god but they're all they are they are all expressions of one entity which is you know, there's a whole bunch of other 
crap we could get into about things in Dota lore that never even appear in the show, but that I can fully explain. Um, but that's what they are. It's, uh, you know, in the second season, um, and he's wrong, by the way, uh, Davion is mega pissed off at Shibara and getting ready to drop him off a roof. Uh, and, you know, he said, you know, Shibara's like, I'm God. And, you know, Slavion says, you know, it's like, even gods stand below the pillars of creation. And he's right. Right. Uh, the, they do. The, 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 the dragons are above even gods, you know, because gods, gods are immortal, but immortal implies that there is a potential state of mortality. Yeah. And we've also seen gods die. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kill a dragon. You can kill the body and take it away, but the essence of it remains and that essence is eternal and forever and there is no question of mortality and kind of of what that is and you know the the dragons stand above that but at the time Slavian did not fully understand what he was facing because Shabara didn't smell like a god he, he couldn't recognize him because Shabara didn't have the power he wasn't the eye and if he were the story would have worked out very differently in book one I totally thought the Dota was going to be about dragons. I totally thought that. <laughs> and then when we were focusing on the moon and then the sun was brought up, I was like, I was wrong. It's not about dragons. <laughs> it's more <laughs> than that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, so we, yeah, we'd definitely, definitely love to have you back on to talk uh, not only more about Dota, but, you know, other things that you've worked on over the years. Like, it's... Now, we're a fan of a lot of things you've worked on and a lot of things you've created. So it's uh, it's definitely been an honor to have you on here. Is there anything you'd like to leave the audience with before we go? Yeah. Uh, you know, I said earlier that, you know, I designed the show to reward rewatch and that, you know, I, I hope um, that on a rewatch that certain things seem different and they feel different. And that's that's good. But, um, you know, the, the show was a, creating the show was a almost four-year odyssey that, mm. uh, you know, nobody in their right mind should have ever said yes to. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a deeply uh, personal story uh, that I hope, what people get out of it is, is something very, you know, real and emotional um, and um, and helpful in some way. Mm. And you know the the plot stuff is it's great and it's fun and it's cool and the action scenes are huge and they're big. But you know if if it affects you. Um, if you walk away, like from the show, with a with a feeling, um, or even for a moment, it makes you think about um, things you've experienced in your life that you know you've had difficulty with, and it helps in some way. That that to me is the is the real success. I, the, uh, I'll say on top of that, 
um, after the first season came out, I found a Reddit post. I need to go back and find it again. Um, and I, I'm sure that it's still there on the Dota anime subreddit. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe the title of it is Princess Marana is my hero. And the author of that post was talking about watching Marana on her journey in the first season and all the things that Marana struggles with and how Marana, you know, she does struggle and she struggles honestly. And she doesn't just get around obstacles because she's a quote unquote badass. Mm -hmm. And she wonders what the right thing is all the time. She wonders if she's capable all the time, yet somehow she always manages to get it done, right? Mm -hmm. to, to do it. And the, the punchline of that post was um, this person saying that, you know, they were in a place in their life where they were thinking about ending it all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, watching the show, watching Marana in particular, um, save their life. And I'm not saying that, good Lord, that's what will happen to you if you watch the show. What I'm saying is the fact that it happened. I love great reviews and I'm like the hype machine now and I'm like reposting good reviews and all those other things. But um, the, the most meaningful response to me has always been that one. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I, again, I just hope that, you know, when people watch this show, if people truly love this show and they meditate on what it, it means, um, and and how they feel about things that it that helps them um that it's comforting in some way even in the sad parts i think sad stories are the most comforting thing in the world and that's that's it i think that's my my closing thought and i can definitely say um on a personal level like with i, I can understand <clears throat> like the motivations of characters like the invoker like i i i definitely strongly related to him um my first daughter that i had uh, about 13 years ago she passed away from sids oh god i'm sorry and so like i understood the invoker's desire to do anything you know for his daughter cuz you know going through that whole process was very traumatic and I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Yeah. That was my first kid. Now I was, yeah, I was uh, twenty or nineteen or twenty at that point. Can't even imagine. Um, and I can understand like wanting to just, you know, you know, you beg, you plead, let's do this, let's do that. How do we prevent it? And like, you can get, you can lose yourself in the what ifs and what what you need to do and. I understood his motivation. Now, was he right in what he, a lot of the things he did? No. But, you know, I, I understood from a father's perspective, you know, you do anything for your children. You know, and it's, just, it's a blessing having this one right here, even though she drives me crazy. Yeah, you do. Yeah, I see you over there. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's the ability to move forward and to do Sometimes you get another chance. Like I, I do view my current daughter here as my second chance of being a father. And you know, you, you do things different. Like that's also why I can relate to Caden. Is like, yeah, I did this and I made that poor choice, but let's do it differently. Like when you're saying like that point when he looked down at the other character, 
the the little boy. I I, I picked up on that. So yeah. I was like, I, I can relate to that. But um, yeah, the, the show it, it's it's touched me in many ways. Um, I don't know about for you. Well, yeah, even <laughs> characters I hated, I end up being compassion for them. Like even Selimene, like towards the end when you're seeing her, I guess, uh, what's it called? She was dying and you could see her aging and kind of showing her vulnerability. And it creates some compassion out of me to for her. And everybody's story felt real. And not gonna lie, I cried on scenes because and I was just so happy to go on a journey through a lot of the characters. Like you said, Marana, that was a really good example because she ran away from a kingdom. She thought she found her place and then she lost it. And then she had to go back to her original kingdom and just find her identity. And then she ends up being responsible for the universe and such. It was insane. And then there's Davion. And then even Rom, where he becomes the father. He needs to be responsible for the future Dragonites. And the one dragon that ended up being, I want to say, enlightened from the rocks that dead, uh, she married mm-hmm. him. <laughs> Even her. Like, I love that character. She was amazing. Yeah. She was, yeah. I want to say she was like an enlightened character. And her end too, it was, it really touched me. Where I, I was sad, but then she just, she died beautifully. Is that, is that a right thing to say? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's and that that scene. It's like when I say like things, I think maybe hopefully have a different context or connotation. That Aroth had a very particular relationship with death, because she had a very particular relationship with um, identity and the notion that she could be aware of herself and be alive. And when you're a dragon and you're part of, you know, the thunder, when you belong to your Eldorum, then death is something that is denied to you, right? So how can you make peace with something that doesn't even exist for you? Like, how can you understand a thing? Like, when when before it didn't exist, and she writes poetry about it. Um, mm-hmm. But she is in um, a very philosophical place, right? That it's like, that these things happen these things happen and she's, you know, she's telling Bram, it's okay, right? Like, um, it was a choice. And it just, I love that character. And it, it if I could have thought of, way, thought of a way to to bring her back rationally, like in, in book three, I would have in a heartbeat. First of all, fans love her. But of course, at that point, I had no idea, right? It was like, things were already written. Like, before I knew that, like, she would also be a blockbuster. I didn't know I was going to, like, and Lena. <laughs> just, <laughs> I just had, like, these three characters. It's like, I had no idea. They'd be, we love her. She's, oh, God, she's dead. She's dead. She's dead. You <laughs> you. I had no clue. Um, I would have loved to have brought her back. 
because she was great. There's a lot of things I would have loved her, but I, there was just no, you know, there wasn't a good story hook. And plus, I felt like I couldn't, like she had, she had completed her arc. Yeah. Whole person, and she had done a thing, and like, and it meant something to her. And it, it was, it was, it was good. Um, it was sad, but it was good. Uh, yeah, I love her. And she was voiced by Tara Platt, uh, who is an amazing uh, voice actress and also the real life wife of uh, Yuri Lowenthal, who plays Davion. Mm -hmm. What? Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> you guys are like, mm-hmm, you should have known better. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, is amazing. Can watch it over and over again. I think it's going to be a timeless animation. Something that later on, when our daughter Sal can understand what's going on, she can rewatch it too. Yeah, yeah, you can rewatch it with us. <laughs> but I appreciate uh, you taking the time to to uh, have this this chat with us and. Like I said, we'd love to have you back on again and talk about more of your works. And sure. I think having you, like, this is, since this is a joint podcast, I know you'd like to have them on yours. And yes, I'd love to have you again on my podcast, Podcast Across Worlds. Especially cool. getting, like, the backstory on the production ideas of the story. Like, I really appreciate everything you shared with us. It was really eye-opening and it gave more depth to the story and characters. Like, especially with the Invoker, Philomena, and all the other characters, even like the small ones. <laughs> and uh, with that being said, where can people find you? I'll also leave links to everything in the description below. But Sure. Yeah. Um, mainly, I mean, I, I really should get with it and like have an Instagram. It's just that, you know, Instagram requires pictures. Uh, but on Twitter, you can find me at Ashmaster0. So with that being said, uh, we want to thank you again for coming on the show. Uh, if you guys, if you're, you know, when this airs, uh, if you're watching it on YouTube or you're listening to it on any of the podcasting outlets, definitely leave a comment and let us know what you think of it. We greatly appreciate the feedback. And if there are any questions you have for the next time we have Ashley on the show, definitely let us know, you know, tweet at him or tweet at us and, you know, just let us know. But uh, with that being said, Ashley, again, great honor to have you on the show. Thank you again, and uh, we'll see you on the next one. <laughs> see you then. Mahalo for your time for listening to this episode of the Casanova Podcast and One Podcast in Hawaii. If you found this episode to be incredibly enjoyable, informative, or if there's anything you gain from it or any uh, insight or, you know, anything that's good that you really, really enjoy, make sure whatever platform you're listening to it on or if you're watching it, Leave a comment if that's available on the platform, like it, share it around with someone you think would enjoy it, and give us some feedback because your feedback is exactly what we need to keep this show going. And if you're wondering what are some ways that you could support the show, we got various ways. We've got Patreon, we have channel memberships over on YouTube, as well as Subscribestar, Coffee, and so much more. Links for everything will be in the description of the podcast, so make sure you go check that out. And with all that being said, I hope you have an aloha rest of your day. Let them know that I'm next level. I'm a whole new kind of guy, Yeah, Yes, at the top spot in case you forgot.
that got the black hat, bullet got the shot.